This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. As you're sitting down, if you would open up your Bibles to the book of James. If you're new to the Bible, that's toward the end of the Bible, toward the end of the New Testament. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Thanks for your patience as we're sort of two weeks into having a new facility. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, So, you know, uh, we're trying to get all the children's ministry classrooms sorted out, and they are on the move, as Pete says. Uh, We're trying to get our sound sorted out. Some people in the first meeting said, while I was speaking, they were hearing an echo, echo, echo. Do you all hear that? Okay. Uh, So, anyway, I just told them that was just extreme authority. That wasn't an echo, but no, I don't know. So, there was echoes, uh, but we're working on sound, lighting, direction of your seats. Some of your seats are turned differently today. We're working on children's, everything. We're figuring it out and learning a lot. So thanks for your patience, and more than that, thanks for your enthusiasm, because you've been enthusiastic about uh, the, whole, uh, the whole process. Uh, okay, James chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 today. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord, with that verse ringing in our ears... We humble ourselves today, for we don't want to be those who are proud and face your resistance. We want to be those who are humble and are touched by your grace. So, Lord, we humble ourselves and we say we need to hear from you. We need your word to speak to us today. We need you to address our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which does so. I pray that as we look at this passage, you would speak to us on this important topic, and that you would reveal afresh to us the Savior. And I pray that you would give us hope that, that, you, that you do save and that you do change those people you save. And so, Lord, help us with that today. I pray that you'd fill me with your strength and mental clarity, and pray that you would just help me to communicate your word in a, in a way that would serve the wonderful folks in this worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of James, and obviously we're done with the first three chapters, so if you're new, you kind of join in this midstream here. But uh, I can think I can summarize what we've covered by just communicating that the book of James is a book that has to do with applied Christianity. God's burden 
that comes forth in this letter that James writes has to do with God's people being saved by His grace and being changed by His grace so that their lives demonstrate the work of God. So that we are not to be people who just hear God's Word, but we are to be those who hear and do God's Word. He talks about chapter 1. Uh, so that we're not just supposed to be those who say we have faith, but no life change. Because James says that faith without works is dead. While we're saved by faith alone, faith is not alone. Once we're saved by faith alone, faith uh, works itself out over time in life change. And so that is really the burden of the text. And we have just read chapter 3, which has to do with the tongue. James is communicating that the, the Christian person's speech will be changed, and there's great damage that can be done by an unchanged tongue that the tongue can set on fire and, and, uh, and bring great destruction. So it talks about that. He then contrasts two types of wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, which produces peace, and an earthly wisdom, which produces uh, disorder. And every vile thing, this chapter 3 says, that, that if we're motivated by selfish ambition, it says, and motivated by envy, disorder just breaks out. And that's a perfect transition into chapter 4, verse 1, which introduces the subject of fights and quarrels. Now, before we even look at this, here's what I find very fascinating about this address, where he asks, what causes fights, what causes quarrels, and what causes fights among, uh, among you? He's taking it as a given. He's taking it as a given that you will have fights and quarrels among you. And what's so interesting is that James is not writing to a single church. James is writing to churches of Jewish Christians who have become Christians spread abroad. So they are spread out. He's not writing to one church. He's writing to Christians in different churches, and he just treats it as a given that fights and quarrels are happening among you. It's not a particular church that's known as the fighting church. It's everybody that has humans in their church. That's a qualification. And if you are a new Christian here, first of all, we're really glad that you are here. But second of all, I just, you know, I hate to be the crusher of dreams, but um, that's my nickname. But I need to let you know that there are quarrels and fights among Christians. Wherever you go, people have disagreements. God has blessed us as a church and protected us in so many ways, and I feel like he's built a unity in our midst and guarded us, but, uh, but we, st- we still are made up of people that struggle with disagreement and anger and unmet expectations and all kinds of stuff that can lead to disagreement, and that is just part of church life. Uh, that is part of every marriage. That is part of every family in the way that Parents relate to children, and children relate to parents. That's a part of every family that has siblings, has more than one child. It's a, that's, it's a reality in every workplace. It's a reality in every small group. It's just the nature of conflict. Um, it, it's a result of our, human, our humanness and our, our fallen nature. And so he begins by just taking it as a given. Now, when he starts to address this issue, which is a given conflict. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's not just saying, hey, tell me who said what and tell me who's mad at whom. He doesn't start with just the what of conflict. He starts with the why of conflict. 
The question he's asking is, what causes, meaning, why are you having conflicts? What is, another way to ask this would be, what are the source of your conflicts? And he's going to answer that question and show us what is the source of all conflict, really. Then he's going to show us the nature of conflict, and he's going to circle back at the end, and I believe give a solution and an answer to help us in, in the midst of conflict or in preparing for conflict. And, and the overall idea he, he gives us here about the source and the nature of conflict is that external conflict comes from internal desires. External conflict comes from our internal desires. Fighting out there starts with fighting in here. Public fights begin with internal problems in our heart. That is the point that he opens up here at the very beginning. What causes fights? And, and, and when he addresses this, it is so helpful to know that he goes to the heart of the matter because that is life-changing. That is life-changing. If all of our conflicts are because he said, she said, then you have no hope unless he or she starts saying differently. But if the problem is here inside of me, then there is a hope because Jesus gives his life to change us internally. So there's tremendous hope. So we're going to spend a number of minutes here talking about something that may sound like bad news. It may initially sound somewhat discouraging. I hope you're not left that way because it's ultimately a very, very hopeful passage. Now, what he does is he doesn't start by just laying down the law. Why all the conflicts? Why all the quarrels? Stop fighting. Okay, we've covered that one. Let's move on. He doesn't just lay out a law. Stop it already. Can't you get along? He doesn't start there. He doesn't just sort of do a sort of a veneer of the gospel and then obedience. So he doesn't say Jesus died and Jesus was resurrected, so stop it. You know, that's not what he does. That's not the approach. He rather goes to the heart. And he's, he drills down and says, what is the source of conflict? And he answers it in the second part of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And when he says, is it not, that's a rhetorical question. What he's saying is, here's the answer. What causes the fights? What causes the quarrels in your midst? Here's the answer. You have these passions that are at war within you. That's the source of conflict. Now, the word passion can be translated pleasure. Uh, It can be translated desire. It means uh, a kind of an internal desire, something that we want, Um, a passion, something you know, that rises. It's a neutral word. It can be used negatively or positively in the original language. It can be used negatively or positively in English as well. We could speak of a lustful passion as something that would be dishonoring to God, and we could speak of someone who's passionate for the Lord. That'd be a good thing. So passion can be good or bad. But the context here is it's clearly wrong in the way he's framing it because it's leading to a sort of a, a conflict of what's going on. Now, when we answer that question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights, we often come up with a different answer than James gives because he locates it right here internally. Often, if we're asked, what are you guys fighting about? We start with, this is what he did. And we locate the source of the conflict out there. We locate the problem over there and not here. We often don't start here. And and I know that even if I I'm sort of savvy enough to notice start here, it still can get there very quickly. 
Why are you having a conflict? Well, I'm, I'm angry. Okay, that's good. That's good, honest admission. Now, why are you angry? Well, I'm only angry because he is blah, blah, and we're right back out there. That's really no different. The source of the conflict is her. The source of the conflict is him. If he would just stop doing that, if she would start doing this, if they were different, then we wouldn't be having a conflict. And that's not what James says. He, He doesn't say you're having a conflict that you wouldn't be mad if they would stop doing that. He says, rather, Uh, that the problem is internal. You have a war going on inside of you. What is this war? Well, here's the war. When you become a Christian, you are regenerated. That is, you're given new life by the Holy Spirit. And the amazing news is that God himself dwells in you as a Christian, and God himself produces passions and desires in your heart. Desire to please the Lord. A desire to worship, which you wouldn't have had prior to being a Christian, to worship the Lord. A desire to serve others and love them. A desire to see people meet Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven, just as you've had. That's a desire that the Holy Spirit puts in you. A desire um, to live your life for God. A desire to see uh, a God-glorifying marriage or unity in your church or your family serving the Lord or whatever it is, a desire to honor God in the workplace. These are all godly desires. But when you become a Christian, it's not as if you have no more sinful temptations. There's a war that goes on. Paul calls it a battle between the flesh and the spirit. So even though you have godly desires, you still have with you prior to your death of the return of Christ, prior, as long as you're alive, you will battle and you will still battle with the desires sinful desires of the flesh. So while there are desires to please the Lord, there are these competing desires at war within you. They're the desires for self. They're the desires for me. They're the desires for my personal pleasure without God in view. My personal passion about me and what I want. So that's within you as well. So there is this battle. Desires to please the Lord and desires to serve others on one hand desires to please me on the other. There are these cravings that are self-oriented. And so there is a war of battles, and when there's a battle of desires. And when the desire for me trumps the desire to please God, when I let that desire rule my heart and I act in that way, then the internal conflict overflows into external conflict. Because I've given in And rather than honoring the Lord, I've given in to a desire and allowed a desire to rule my heart, which is not pleasing to the Lord, which is all about me, and conflict breaks out. And so that's that's the source of conflict, is something that comes from within you. Look what he says in verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You desire something and you're not getting it. And so the desire for what you want moves beyond the desire to please the Lord and honor the Lord, your way above His way, selfishness above selflessness, the glory of me above the glory of God. You want something and you don't get it, and someone gets in the way of what you want, there's conflict. It spills out from inside. You want something, you don't get it, and so you murder. Now, is this literal? I mean, this is serious, like, at the care group, if people are coming armed, you know, that's a pretty serious, that's a pretty serious deal. I don't know, the guy said something mean to me, and we never saw him again. That's pretty much, that's a pretty brutal church right there. Are they really murdering? Well, let me just say, 
there's nothing exege- there's nothing in the text that would mean that would prohibit us from taking it literally. It could be. It could be that somewhere in one of these churches things got so out of hand that somebody killed someone. I mean, that's certainly possible. Um, but it seems like for this to be, he's addressing this as much more of a widespread issue. It doesn't seem like it would be some isolated uh, murder scandal or something like that. It seems like it was, he's talking about something that's more common. There's fights among you. You want something. Every time you want something and don't get it, you don't literally kill someone. So what he's probably talking about is sort of the murder of the heart, we could say. Um, Jesus in Matthew 5 said, you have heard it said that it was uh, said of old. I mean, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus introduces this new category. He says, don't think you fulfilled the law just because you're not killing people. If you've gotten angry with someone, that was Matthew 5, 21, if you're angry, then you've committed murder in, in your heart. You're, you're guilty as well just because you've been angry with someone. Now, the consequences of taking a life and being angry at someone and allowing them to live, obviously the consequences are drastically different. Um, and how we should respond to that situation is very different. However, at a heart level, what he's saying is don't give yourself a pass just because you've heard it said, don't murder, and you say, I'm not murdering anyone. If you've been angry, you are guilty as well. So that's probably the kind of murder he's talking about here is that you desire and you do not have, so you murder. There is a a, a murderous heart. There is an angry attitude that you have. That something, that the the desire for what you want wins the battle and spills out into external conflict. If you are between what I want, me and what I want, If you hinder me from getting what I want, then I'm angry and we have a quarrel. The same is with coveting, he says. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Coveting is desiring something that God's not provided for you. It may not be something necessarily bad, but it's something that you want that you don't have, that you attach your contentment, your well-being to. In other words, I have to have that. I desire that. My life will be good if I get that. could be something physical car, a house, a computer, um, you know, kitchenware, I, tools, it could be anything. Something, I've got to have that money, savings account, retirement plan. If I have that, then I'll be happy. And so the desire for that is what you're hanging on to and leaning on. Or, or it could be um, something that's wrong. I mean, it could be something you want that's good or not good, but whatever. But it's a desire that you are attached to. And he says, you want something it could be something non-physical as well. It could be like reputation, the respect of others, popularity, being thought well of. Um, it could be something like that as well. So you desire this thing, leisure, comfort, whatever it is, and you're not getting it. You desire something, you don't receive it, and so then you are angry. You covet something, you cannot obtain it, so that you fight and you quarrel. It leads to disagreement. Something internal goes external. And that's the problem, he says. The problem's not what they did. The problem's not what they didn't do. The problem's right here, is what he's saying. The problem's with your wants, your passions, your desires, and how they compete with the God-given desires to honor and to serve him. And when the desire for me beats out the desire to please the Lord, then in that situation... 
conflict can occur. This is, this is so real for all of us. You know, we can have a desire that can become a ruling desire in a situation and can lead us to sin. You know, I was thinking back in my own life as a father that over the years, one, one place where I can be tempted to impatience and to anger and can lead to conflict, interestingly, is where in, in any of our kids, especially when they're younger, but even any time, uh, could be having a conflict together. And then I need to go intervene in that and bring instruction, go judge Judy on them or something, figure out, you said, wait, no, try to sort it out and bring some kind of uh, unity to the situation. And oftentimes that will invade other desires I have. So like after a hard day of work, I have desires for like comfort, hassle-free, no problems, problems at work, don't want any problems at home. You know, that kind of, you can relate. So I, I just want to be able to relax and not be, have any uh, imposition to the world of rest, comfort, hassle-free existence that I demand and certainly desire and, and deserve, right? So I can hear in the other room a quarrel starting to go up, and it's just very easy to not want to go get involved in that because that will take time, that will take effort, that will take energy. So I have a desire to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I have a desire to train them. I have a desire by teaching and by modeling to uh, demonstrate what it means to serve Christ and how the gospel applies. But I also have a desire for my own personal leisure and comfort. And so if that desire breaks through, then I can bring conflict into the conflict that exists. And it may start with, you know, don't make me come in there kind of a thing. You know, one, two, I'm counting to 500, you know, because I really don't want to get up. So certainly by 500, somebody will fall asleep or leave or whatever. But, you know, I don't want to go deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. And so, so I then can be angry because my ruling desire is not to honor the Lord by training the children, but my own comfort. So then I can go in with a huff. What's going on? Let's just everybody separate, go to a different spot, and we don't have to deal with it. And that's not good. But see, my own ruling desire can add to that conflict rather than helping to serve in that situation. Other situations, God's will and God's plan and God's grace can help uh, when faced with tempting situations, can lead us to act in the right way to avoid conflict as well. Because just because somebody did something that didn't meet our expectations doesn't mean we have to have a conflict. Just because somebody did something we don't like, the grace of God could help us. And we can avoid a conflict. Not just, you know, this works both ways. Um, this week, and I'll give an example of my wife. This week, uh, we had a plan to have a date night. And uh, so I, we had talked about the plan. And I said, okay, I'll go pick our son up from practice at 5.30. So I'm at work. I'll take off. When I'm done with work, I'll go pick our son up from practice. I'll come home. You'll be ready. Uh, I'll get you. We'll go out for, uh, for a date night. Be wonder- That'll be great. Well, what happened was I got drawn into something, and it was important. It really was important, working with uh, someone, at, at, and I was working here uh, at, the, at the office, and it's going, I'm realizing I, I really need to continue to do what I'm doing because uh, it really would help someone. I needed to do this. It was important. So um, about 10 minutes before the pickup time, when she would have been getting ready for the date night, I just call and say, hey, is there any way you can go pick up? 
uh, our son from practice because I'm still working. I think I really need to keep working, and I'm delayed. I think this is important. So we already had a plan. So the temptation for her could be then to say, uh, well, I guess so, right? <laughs> Which means, yes, I'll do it, but I'm mad about this. But that's not what she, she said. Sure, fine. Really, with joined her voice, and she went and picked him up. I said, I'll be home as soon as I can. And so an hour and a half later, uh, and obviously if this was a pattern, this would be an issue, but I really did need to be there this time. So an hour and a half later, uh, I'm done, and I call her, and I say, okay, I'm finished with this really important meeting, and I'm on my way home. And uh, so the temptation would be, I'll be waiting, you know, like that. And then, man, this is going to be like the date from down under, and I don't mean Australia. So I I, I was thinking, this is not going to be good. But that's not how she responded. She responded, sure, that's great. So I got home. She was ready, and she was joyful, and she was pleasant, and we went out and had a great time. Now, that, could, that is a situation for conflict. I'm not saying give me a pass. If I was doing something wrong, you know, it should be addressed. But, but that was a conflict averted because the selfish desire, he said, he promised, I'm expecting. Am I not more important? I have a craving that I, for my own affection and my own attention, and he's not giving me that right now, and so, wow. Or he says it's important. I trust my husband. I guess it must, you know, it must be important. I'm going to respond joyfully, and we'll get to go out later. And that's the plan of the Lord, being loving and patient and gracious and kind. No conflict. Good date. So you see how the competing desires can, can uh, affect us. And um, it's just great to, to see how God helps us at times so that we can respond. At other times, it's our craving desires that, that, that come forth and that that's what brings a problem. The key in dealing with conflict is to be aware of its source. It comes from a desire for self that wins our heart and rules and spills over. David Pallison, who is just one of the best biblical counselors I've ever heard speak or read anything by, and he wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes, and this is a quote where he talks about this passage. He says, I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, and self-righteousness, who really understood and reckoned with their motives. He's counseled a lot of people. I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their motives. That is, they saw it was an internal issue. James 4 teaches, he writes, that cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my husband dot, dot, dot. It's not because my wife, dot, dot, dot. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them, cravings for affection, attention, power, vindication, cravings for control, comfort, a hassle-free life, they can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. I love the way he says that cravings underlie conflict. And giving into that craving spills out into conflict. That is the source, the desire for me. Now, it doesn't, desire, it doesn't deny that the other person's at fault. So what James is not saying is all, all conflict or 50-50 responsibility or something like that. He's not saying the other person didn't sin. He's not saying the other person's inconsiderate. He's not saying the un- other person con- didn't contribute to this. He's not saying any of that. 
He's just saying, start with your own heart. This is where you start. What's the source? Let's all look internally at what are we desiring? What are we craving? What are we passionate about? What is the pleasure that we are pursuing in this situation? What is the ruling desire of my heart? If everyone looks there and sorts that out, then we can, we can work everything out. It's kind of like where Jesus says that we are to examine the log, we're, consider, we're to consider the log protruding from our own eye before we go and try to remove the speck from someone else's. It's the same thing. Let me look at myself and see what, what God would say to me. Now, when those desires come, we should turn to the Lord. But he says here, James says, you're not going to the Lord with these things. He says, you ask, I'm sorry, he says, you, after he says you fight and quarrel, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passion. So you should, he's tying in prayer with this fighting and quarreling. You know, when there is some internal battle in your heart going on and you're wrestling with impatience, anger, demands, you're craving attention, affection, control, you're desiring control, you're loving leisure and comfort and a hassle-free existence, whatever it is, when that's going on, you should ask God for help. But you don't get help because you don't ask, is what he says. And when you do ask, you, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So you're asking the, for the fulfillment of your desire. So the prayer, in essence, is, Lord, would you fix them so I'll be happy and get what I want? And he's saying, God's not going to answer that prayer. God wants you to look internally. God wants, by his grace, to see the demands and the rules of your heart and to help you sort that out. And come to him for that. And when you do come to him for that, don't make the prayer fix all those bad people out there. That's the Pharisees' prayer, isn't it? I thank you that I'm not like them. God, in this conflict, would you change their heart? And he's saying that's just not the right prayer to be praying. You should come to God. Often you don't. And when you do, he's saying, you come with the wrong motives. Do you want something for yourself in it that is not pleasing ultimately to God? What does God think about this? Well, verse 4 is strong language. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Are they being sexually immoral? No, I don't think so. He's using that metaphorically. In the Old Testament, the prophets frequently said that God's people were adulterers when they went after other gods. The book of Hosea talks about that, for instance. So being unfaithful to God's covenant by not following him was viewed as spiritual adultery. You adulterous people, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he's saying is you're unfaithful in your heart when you're pursuing yourself and when it's leading to conflict and when you're living in that world, you are being unfaithful to the God who loves you. You're being adulterous to the God who is always faithful to his people, to the God who is, the the church is his bride, and when the church turns away from him in that way, he says, actually, you're being worldly. You're being a friend with the world, and you're you're embracing the world's values, the world's ideas, and you're starting to act like someone who's an enemy of God. Now, you're not if you're a Christian, but you're beginning to act like someone who's an enemy. 
Do you see what you have? We have these desires. They're not being fulfilled. Someone gets in the way. We have a conflict. And he says, you're turning from God. You love the world. He's in essence saying there's something worldly about that. I think we need to broaden our view of worldliness a little bit. Because some can have a false view of worldliness and think, well, I'm not worldly if I avoid the world. So I'll get anything that smacks of worldly. I won't have anything to do with that. And it's a totally external mindset rather than internal. And so you pick it. I mean, depends on who you talk to. You could come from all kinds of stuff. And I never go to the movies. Or, uh, and if that's your choice and it's for the right reasons, that's fine. But I don't ever go to the movies. I don't own a TV. I don't spend any money because I don't want to be materialistic. I don't have any non-Christian friends. We just sort of huddle up our family in an isolated zone and we don't want to have any touch or contact with the world because if we touch them and we touch the culture, we'll catch it and we'll be worldly. It's all kind of external out there. It's about merely what I wear and what I watch and what I listen to and it's never in here. And what he's saying is, you know what, if you do those kinds of things for the wrong reason and you're self-righteous, for instance, and the self-righteousness of your heart leads to conflict, you're worldly. You're worldly. That's love for the world. That's the desire. That's thinking and acting like the world. Me, my righteousness, it's possible to have a wrong view of worldliness. Worldly is, is to think like the world, to pursue the world, to have the desires of the world rule and reign in our hearts rather than a desire to please the Lord and to honor God. And he says when you're fighting Man, that's worldly. You're acting like an enemy of God. Now, let's be truthful. When I read this passage, um, I just think God puts a whole lot more concern on the topic of conflict than I do. I mean, if you just read this totally surface, you don't dig in. We've dug in for 30 minutes plus here. Uh, if you just don't dig in and you read it on the surface, the first verse, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You do not have to be a biblical scholar. What's this passage about? Conflicts and fights. Okay. What causes arguments among you? And then here's what he talks about. Murder. He starts talking about murder in the midst of it. starts talking about uh, covetousness. starts talking about adultery. Um, talks about war talks about being at enmity, a hatred, and opposition to God. These are strong words. And so he is wanting to make a very strong statement. He goes on and says, God jealously, he's jealous over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. God desires his people to know him and to follow him and to walk with him. God desires his people to experience him by his love. God desires his people to know him, to bring him honor and to bring him glory. And yet when we give in to these fights and quarrels and disagreements and we look externally rather than internally, we act like the world and we don't do that. And so God is jealous over his people that they would know him. I mean, it's just a heavy passage of Scripture in many ways. It's very convicting. And I sort of can pick the sermon units. You know, I think there, na- I think there are some sermon units, you know, a certain set of verses we should look at. Um, I think there's natural breaks in the passage. But there is no way that I'm going to stop right there. Because I, I think all of that is a setup to everything I've just said, everything in the first five verses is a setup to get to verse 6. Because with all that in view, he says, but he gives more grace. 
Who needs grace? Sinful people. People who allow the competing desires for self at many points to rule over the desires that God has placed in our heart to know Him. People that act like murderers in their heart. People that are, are adulterers because they turn away from God and turn towards the world. People that posture themselves at enmity with God because it's all about me and my desires and my reputation and my belongings and my comfort and my security and what makes me happy and everything running the way I want it to go. And if it doesn't and something gets in the way, I'm angry about it. Those people get grace, and more grace, and more grace. There's an endless supply of grace from God to meet quarrelsome folk like you and like me. That is glorious, glorious good news. That there is grace to forgive us of our sins, and that would be enough. But there's more. There is grace to change us to change our desires, to reconcile our relationships. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, takes our sins upon Him, all our murderous and angering and covetous desires, all of our sinful words and actions, all of our icy relationships and the way we respond to others, our self-pity, our vindictiveness, our gossip, our slander. All of these things that cause conflict that flow from our hearts, all of those are placed on Jesus. And God the Father pours out His judgment for our sins upon the Son. And He does that so that we can be forgiven. But Jesus' body is not only broken, and he, He not only is a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, but also so that we can be reconciled to one another. Jesus dies so that we can be unified and reconciled and sinful people can be brought together. And there's more grace. And there's more grace. And there's more grace. Grace to change us. Grace to mature us. Grace to change our perspective. Grace to see. It is, it is the gift of God. It is the grace of God to see the real motivation of conflict that resides in us, and to repent. That is a kindness of God. And we need more grace to see that and to be aware. Grace to have a different heart towards someone who's offended us or whom we perceive has offended us. Grace to forgive. Grace to welcome. Grace to help us love. And that grace comes as we humble ourselves. That's what he says. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Humility starts with recognizing, you know what? Maybe the problem isn't out there. Maybe the problem is right here. It starts there. God, I recognize that I am at fault. My, my biggest problems aren't circumstances. My biggest problems are my biggest problems are right here. So seeing that as grace. Secondly, to humble ourselves says, God, I, I, I can't change myself. I ask you to forgive me, and I ask you to change me. And I'm confident, I trust that you will change me. God gives more grace. Then grace enables us to humble ourselves and ask forgiveness for those to whom we've sinned against, to ask their forgiveness, to recognize our need, to communicate 
our responsibility and to acknowledge our need for their forgiveness, our need for God to change us. We go to those whom we've had conflict with. We humble ourselves. We ask for forgiveness, recognizing that Jesus died not only to uh, forgive our sins, but to make us one body. Jesus died so that Christian marriages could reflect the gospel. That's the very purpose of the, ma- of the marriage is to, or a central purpose, I should say, a foundational purpose is to reflect Christ in the church, God's love for the church, the husband and the wife. Jesus gives his life so that through resolving conflict, through being reconciled, not through being perfect people, but through reconciling, we demonstrate the love of God so that marriages could be changed so that even our witness with those who are unbelievers when there's a conflict, that we could humble ourselves and communicate the gospel through taking personal responsibility for our actions and asking for their forgiveness because of what Christ has done for us. God gives more grace. There is no broken relationship represented in this room that's not beyond the grace of God. God is gracious. And if your marriage is on its last thread, God gives more grace to you today to help you. If in your relationship with your child you are on your last nerve, whatever that means, I don't know. I've said it, but I don't know what it means. So your last nerve, God gives more grace. If there's a distant relationship with your parents or your siblings, or someone you used to be in fellowship with, and you do not see how in the world that could be fixed, God gives more grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your need. Start with, you know what? This passage says the problem's desires of my heart, not them. Not that they don't have something to contribute, but I start right here and ask God to help you. There's no sinful desire as well that God doesn't want to work on and help us with in our lives. God gives more grace. I I definitely believe that's a statement about forgiveness, but the grace of God does more than just wipe out past sins. The grace of God changes us. That's the whole purpose of the book of James. The whole purpose is genuine Christian faith leads to a changed life. And so when God gives more grace, we should have faith that God wants to turn our hearts, that that person that we currently are opposed to, God wants to give us love for them. God wants to make us a peacemaker. God wants to restore relationship. God wants to help me with my anger problem, my impatience problem, whatever the issue is. God wants to help me with my coveting desires. God wants to help me with the lie that says, if I only have this, then life will be okay. God wants to be more than enough for me and wants to help me with this. Listen, earlier I I gave this quote from David Pallison, which is helpful. Cravings underlie conflicts. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that is a succinct explanation of verses 1 and 2. But we did not stop at verses 1 and 2. We ended up at verse 6. God gives more grace to forgive and to change. So while it is definitely true that cravings underlie conflicts, it is also true that the cross conquers cravings. That the grace of God is intended to change our hearts, to restore our relationships, to make a difference. Jesus' death and resurrection is to make a difference. So please do not walk out of here primarily or solely aware of the motivation of your heart 
Certainly don't walk out of here aware of what they did. Do not walk out of here just of the motivation of your heart. Start there. Humble yourself. See your need. Ask for God's help. Ask his forgiveness. But then take action. Be prepared to ask someone else's forgiveness and pursue reconciliation however you can. And trust the Lord to change your heart. He gives more grace to you, not to just the guy sitting next to you. He gives more grace to you if you're a Christian. God gives more grace. So receive today. Receive his help. Humble yourself and receive his help. And believe that God can reconcile and God can change and God can make a difference. The tomb is empty. Your sins are forgiven. The power of God is here in the presence of the Spirit and by his Scripture to change us. May we be peacemakers. May we pursue reconciliation. May we ask God to change our hearts. May the desires for him ever be elevating and the desires for self ever be putting to death more and more and more. Let's pray. God, we thank you today that you are a great and a mighty God and that you've, in this passage of Scripture, shown us today our need for you. God, when we think about the various conflicts in our lives, when we think about your view of those conflicts, God, it's, it's really not hard to be humble. <laughs> we humble ourselves and we say, we need you, God. We need you. I pray that you would help us as a people, God, to, to guard our hearts. I pray that you would help us to turn from blame shifting and looking to others to find the source of conflict. And I pray that you would help us to look at our own selves. And I pray that you would, as we see what lies there, as we see those competing demands, I pray that we could repent and turn from them. I pray that we could find our joy in you. I pray that we could find our life and our satisfaction in you. I pray that you would forgive us where we're looking elsewhere. And I pray that you would change us. And I pray for everyone in the room that has a, um, a damaged, a broken, and estranged relationship that you would give grace to change hearts and to bring restoration. Lord, it's a huge, huge prayer request we ask today. And we don't want, like this passage, to ask for our own sort of selfish glory. We want to ask for your glory. We want to ask that you would change our hearts and that you would restore relationships and that you would renew our witness and that you would change the very way we think about others, that we might see others the way you see them, that we may have the heart of love for others that you have for them, and that we, Lord, might, that we might repent and change God. Lord, we love this verse. I love this verse. Lord, this is, is there a better verse? I mean, God gives more grace. Lord, we receive that today. More grace for today. And our relationships, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.